Amen. Well, it is an honor to be able to be here with you, and it's always good to get to be with brothers and sisters in Christ in the West. Since God relocated my family to the West 11 years ago, it's just become our home. We, we, uh, it's, just, we are, it's in our blood. We've had opportunities to go back East, but we just believe we've received a life assignment from the Lord to plant our lives in the Western United States. And I said last night, I, I really do believe if there is a hope, for another movement of God in America, it will come from the Western United States. I, I really believe that with all of my heart. And I'm praying, you can't create movement. Only God can create movement. But we can put principles in place to multiply that God can use as the foundation for a movement if he so chooses. So it's, it's a joy and an honor to be here with you. Uh, I, I am a, a little bit, I'm a passionate guy. I appreciate you saying that. I, uh, when I first got to Las Vegas, uh, a pastor took me to lunch and he said, now Vance, you know, uh, you, you can't talk like that in the West. Um, you're going to have to get rid of all of your sermons. You're going to, you can't, you can't preach like that in the West. And the problem with that is you just got to be who you are. You know what I mean? I mean, in the church world, we have got to stop trying to be everybody else who the latest, greatest, slickest, sharpest. You just got to be who God's made you to be. And here's the thing. Whether I'm watching an Alabama football game or preaching, I'm the same loud son of a gun. I mean, it's just, it's who I am, all right? So uh, I, I just appreciate you allowing me to be here. It's an honor. Uh, Mr. President, thank you so much for letting me be here. And it's, it really is a joy to get to come and fellowship uh, with you. I want to share something with you today that um, is really an area where God's doing some stuff in my own heart. And let me open it like this. Let me, when we were in Woodstock, God, uh, we weren't actually members of Woodstock there at first Woodstock with pastor Johnny. Um, he had contacted me and asked me to, to be a part of planting a church. It's a, it's kind of a long story, but the, the quick version is I was spending time in a quiet time one morning, just intimate with the Lord in Luke chapter four, read verse 43, where Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. And that morning, God spoke to my heart, and I knew he was doing something. We were living in Memphis at the time. I grabbed my wife. We prayed, and we put our yes on the table and said, Lord, we don't know when. We don't know where, but the answer is yes. We saw something in the life of Christ that morning that wasn't in us, a passion for the kingdom of God like we talked about yesterday. And honestly, when we put that yes on the table, we thought we were headed overseas. Uh, I visited the International Mission Board two weeks ago and was there and, and, and was meeting with some of the leadership. And I, I got to walk by the office that turned me down. When, when my wife and I put our yes on the table, first thing we did was call the International Mission Board, thought that's where we got to be going. And uh, because my wife didn't have enough college credit, they, they said we're at that time, their policy was, you know, you're not you, you can't go through our process. And so God closed that door. But we really thought we were going to Africa or Asia or somewhere to plan our lives in another city to to expand God's kingdom and. Two weeks after we put our yes on the table, Johnny Hunt comes and speaks for me at an event and we're walking out and he says, Vance, God's put it on our heart to plant a church in the fastest growing city in North America, Las Vegas. And he said, God's put it on my heart that you're to be the pastor of that church. Now, two weeks prior, we said, Lord, yes, we don't know where, we don't know when. Two weeks later, God had the audacity to fill in the blank with Las Vegas. Growing up in Alabama, you don't go to Las Vegas. And if you do, you don't tell anybody, right? They don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they believe you can smell it from there. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not the kind of place you talk about. So when he said Vegas, you couldn't have picked a place that was further from our, uh, just, it wasn't even on our radar at all. We didn't come up with a great dream and plan for God. God was doing something and he just invited us to get in on it. So our process was we relocated to Woodstock, spent eight months there believing, and this is a missing link in church planning, believing strongly that churches plant churches. Living things reproduce themselves. Individual, I didn't plant a church in Las Vegas. First Baptist Church, Woodstock, Georgia did. Now, God used us as the missionaries they sent out, but churches reproduce. Churches plant churches. One of the missing links in our whole church planting is the element of the sending church. That's why I love where the North American Mission Board is going with the send strategy. They're putting more emphasis and focus on sending churches. So we went to Woodstock to spend eight months. And our job description there was build relationships. And when, when we were there, we got there, there was a couple that in the early weeks invited my family and our team over for dinner. 
They want us to come over to the house and have dinner. We were doing that pretty much breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That was our job description. We were eating with people. We were building relationships so that we weren't just names on a missionary page. They had relationships with us. And, and this one particular couple is a younger couple in the church, and, and, and they invited us, and we set the date. It was going to be like three weeks. So you know how it is, church in the south. If you're not from the south, maybe you don't. But, but church in the south, you spend like 25 hours a week at church. I mean, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. You're at church all the time. So for three weeks... We ran into this couple over and over and over and over again. And all they could talk about was this dinner we were going to have. And in particular, one aspect of the dinner for three weeks, this guy built up this pumpkin pie recipe. I mean, it was a recipe that had been handed down for generations in his family. It was a recipe that had won all kinds of awards. And, and I mean, for three weeks, every time we saw them, all he talked about was this pumpkin pie that he was going to fix. This pumpkin pie that was going to be the end of all pumpkin pies. It was going to be the greatest pumpkin pie that had ever been placed on a plate in front of me. The problem was, I don't like pumpkin pie. It may have been the very best pumpkin pie since the Garden of Eden. but I don't like pumpkin pie. So it didn't matter how good it was. I wasn't going to like it. When I think about the church in America, and some of what I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm still, I'm, I'm figuring it out. I don't have the answers yet, okay? So, You're going to get to hear a little bit of a messy sermon today. It's not polished. It's not completely packaged. It's not fleshed out. It's where I'm living. When I I think about the church in America, I'm afraid that we're spending our lives making pumpkin pie to get to heaven someday and find out God didn't like pumpkin pie. We're making something that is not even what he wanted on the table. I'm I'm wrestling with an internal struggle. It's, 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 it's on me right now. I've, I've been living with it for a couple of years, just wrestling in my own heart. You know the statistics, I'm sure. We have, we have more, we have the largest churches on the American continent that we've ever had in the history of the United States of America. Largest churches on the American continent we've ever had with, with fewer people attending church in America than we've ever had. We have 95% of all the Christian resources, seminary trained workers, 95% of all of the Christian resources and workers that have been trained in the world living among 5% of the world's population on our continent. And our continent is the only continent on the globe where Christianity is on the decline. Albert Einstein, I think, said... To continue to do the same things over and over again and expect different results is the definition of insanity. I believe our denomination is on the borderline of complete and utter insanity. We continue to do the same things. And we expect it to be different. Our baptism rate in our denomination is consistently going down and down. And our our church planting rate is going down. Our our missionary sending rate is going down. And and we just like the guys on the Titanic playing music. 
Let me give you a question we got to answer. Have we become so busy with our dreams, our plans, our programs, our needs, and our ideas of what the church is to be that we may have missed the very essence of God's real desire for us? I'm afraid we we come out of the moment we surrender to the call to preach. We have this dream of what it's supposed to look like. Because we, we only have our culture of Christianity as a lens to look through, we're so alienated and isolated from the the larger global context of the Christian movement that we only have our box to look in. And so we we create a dream and a vision of what we think the church is supposed to look like. And we drop some Bible verses in there. But the New Testament isn't the driving impetus. It's It's years of tradition. If we're not careful, we're going to become the Catholic church with evangelical terminology. Driven by years of tradition. Let me try to illustrate it another way. I, my wife and I are taking off this weekend. We're, 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 we're getting away together and... We're going to do something I hadn't done in years. I grew up in Alabama, and when you grow up in Alabama, college football is like a way of life. And you don't, you don't like, you, it's not like you can say, well, I don't know who I'm for. I mean, you, you declare when you're born. The University of Alabama or Auburn. You know, you declare. <laughs> I know I got a few Auburn fans over here. We're praying at the end. They come forward in the invitation, give our lives to Christ. We... we we're going to an Alabama football game this Saturday. We're going to watch Alabama and Tennessee play. And we hope we roll them up. That, that's what we hope. We hope we roll them up and send them back to Tennessee. I, I love college football. It's, it's an obsession if you're born in Alabama. It's like almost religious. It's just a, if you're not from the, it's hard to appreciate what I'm talking about. But in, in football, we've gotten to the place now where by the time the buzzer sounds at the end of the game, they can tell you every minute statistic about what happened on the field. They can tell you not just how many yards a guy rushed for, they can tell you how many yards he rushed for after he got hit the first time, after he got hit the second time, after he got hit the third. They can tell you how many yards the quarterback passed for, how many times he threw the ball, how many different receivers he threw it to. They can divide the field up into about nine different zones and show you his completion percentage rate in the different zones. They can break it down inside the 20-yard line, show you his percentage inside the red zone. I mean a million statistics that that you can find out about a football game when it's all said and done. But at the end of the day, there's only one goal line. They call it the goal line for a reason. That's the goal. You can throw for 7,000 yards, but if you don't get across that line... The 7,000 yards are useless. Just ask Cam Newton right now in the NFL. Man, the guy's blowing it up with throwing all over the field and the team's won one game. Passing and rushing and tackling statistics don't mean anything if you don't carry the ball across the goal. That is the goal. Touchdowns are the goal. Why? Because whoever gets the most of those at the end wins the game. We've gotten to the place in the church, specifically in our denomination, we got statistics on everything. We can tell you how many people come, how often they come, what the giving per capita rate is. We can tell you that there are groups A, B, and C that rotate and come on different weekends. A comes every week, B comes these weeks, C comes that week. 
We can tell you the percentage of somebody coming to Christ before the age of 12, between 12 and 18, between 18 and 35. We can show you the percentages. We can break it all down. We can show you the numbers of churches that are engaged in church planning and those that aren't. We can show you the health or, or we, can, we can show you the, uh, the, the engagement of churches and globalization. We can show you all. We have, we have people. That's what they do for a living. That's all they do is statistics. But what's the goal? You see, the only reason passing and rushing yards make any difference at all is the degree to which they move the ball across the goal. The only reason any of our statistics have any bearing at all is the degree to which they help us move the ball across the goal. What's the goal? You know what I'm afraid? I'm afraid we don't even know. If you read a lot of our books and you watch a lot of our videos, we, we say some things, honestly, that just aren't even accurate. That sounds trendy and it, and it reads good and it, it, it makes dollars, but we have one goal. One. And it's the last Thing Jesus said. And I would submit to you this morning, if it's the last thing he said, what do you think is going to be the first thing he asks when he comes again? It's not going to be the questions we ask each other. Well, how many, how many are you running? How many did you have this week? How's your budget? How many, how many staff you got? How, how do you structure? You use elders. Are you congregational? How, how does your church make decisions? What's the last thing he said? Two words, make disciples. How are we doing at that? You see, we can't keep taking church as usual and expect different results. We got to start asking some hard. We had to start asking some hard questions in Las Vegas. I mean, we God let us be involved in, in, in birthing a new church there, and you know it was more people this week than was here last week. And the tennis figures were going up, and every week we were on a trajectory like this, where there was more people, more money, more staff. It was exploding. The city was growing, and I, I want to apologize for the economic meltdown of America. It was my fault. God had to do it to get my attention. See, economically, the, the, our country melted down, and, and unfortunately, the city I live in was at the epicenter of that wave. Our unemployment rate in Las Vegas is still 21%. People's houses are worth about 30% of what they paid for them four years ago. We went on a run in our church of 18 months where we lost 350 families that lost their jobs. Every, I, got, I almost went into depression. I would go to the services, and every weekend there'd be seven, eight families in tears. Pastor, we're moving. We lost our job and our home. We have, we, we have nothing. Seven, eight families a week for 18 months. We did a survey in our church. 30% of the people in our church been in it less than 12 months. So we'd grown by 30% and our attendance was down 15% from a year prior. We'd grown by 30% to go backwards. And it forced us to really ask some hard questions. Now, I want to read Matthew 28 and then I want to Ask two questions. Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, 
Now, now listen, I, I shouldn't, we shouldn't even have to say this, but we, we've, especially as Southern Baptists, we, we've read Matthew 28, 18 through 20 so many times. Listen, listen, don't forget the context here. Last words. Imagine you've got your children in a room. And it's the last thing you're ever going to say to them physically in their presence. Last words. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go. Go therefore and make disciples. Of all the nations. Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them. To observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Two important questions. What is a disciple? See, if it's what we're supposed to make, <laughs> we need to know what, what, are we, what are we shooting at. If you don't know where the end zone is, you're going to have a hard time getting the ball. If you think it's on the, if you think it's the sideline, you're not going to design the plays exactly right to get there. What is a disciple? And I think this is where we've gotten off track from the very beginning. In today's culture, we tend to define a disciple in one of two ways. Southern Baptist churches and and other evangelical churches, we tend to define a disciple in one of two ways. Number one, we define a disciple by what a person does. So somebody comes to Christ and our goal is conformity to a system or a pattern of behavior and the focus is on action. Okay, I believed in Jesus. Now, what do I do? And as Baptists, our operative word for this is commitment. How many services have we had where we've asked people to make another commitment to do something? Have you ever gotten tired of commitment after commitment? Listen, not even the people. Look at your own life. All the commitments that I've made and hadn't kept. I hope God doesn't pull out all the cards we filled out at Southern Baptist conventions and state convention meetings and associations where we've checked off 32 boxes of what we were going to do. What is a, what is a faithful follower of Jesus look like? Even when we begin to answer that question, we usually start with a list of, man, you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church every week, you give 10% of your income, gross, not net. You share your faith with your neighbors, you go on mission trips, right? Oh, and then there's the whole list of things you're not supposed to do. And guess what I found out when I moved to Las Vegas? The don't list is a moving target depending on where you live. There are people in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where I grew up. The list of things you're not supposed to do is very different from where I live now. And it's very different there from where they are in Lusaka, Zambia or Beijing. It's a moving target. Now, we let a guy to Christ in Las Vegas about a year ago and he owned a liquor store. Gave his life to Christ and God began to do a deep work in him. And then one of the biggest problems we make is we get so focused on treating the symptoms that we don't deal with the real issues. 
We put the cart before the horse. We want him to clean it up on the outside instead of Jesus making a radical transformation on the inside that begins to spill out as his life in us, not me trying to do my best to live for him. This guy gave his life to Christ. We're teaching him about the Christ life, living out of the overflow of intimacy with God. It's radically changing his life. And he comes up to me after service. And he says, Pastor, he comes up to one of our other pastors. He says, Pastor, hey, hey, this has so radically changed my life. You tell me your favorite vodka and I will ship a case to your house. He didn't know that's on the don't list. People walk out of our church sometimes and say, tattoos down both arms, pastor. That was one hell of a sermon today. He doesn't know you're not supposed to say it like that. Have to grab my kids and cover their ears. Because to him, you know what he said? In his heart? He said, amen, preacher. That's just the only way he knew how to say it. But often we define a disciple by what a person does. You do these things and you don't do these things and then you hope for the best in the end. I call it evangelical Catholicism. Or there's another way we define a disciple, by what a person knows. We think it's about information, so we start teaching them principles of belief or doctrine. And in that church, a disciple is somebody who's completed a a series of Bible classes and they can answer all of the questions. They can dot every theological I and cross every theological T. They can debate apologetically in, in contemporary society. They can discuss about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They can define substitutionary atonement. They can, they can answer all the questions. They're, 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 they're neophyte theologues, if you will. They, they understand it all. And the crowning day is when they get the certificate that they've now completed this list of classes and have all of this new information. There was a group of people in the Bible who could answer all the questions. Problem is, they wound up crucifying Jesus. Jesus even said about them, man, you, you search the scriptures. You know that Old Testament. He says, problem is you you, you don't realize that that's all about me. The word disciple is a a word that means something different than just what you do or what you know. And listen, don't don't misunderstand. I understand Christianity changes who we are. And Christianity is built upon a a core centrality uh, of the gospel, the doctrinal truths of the Bible. I am not discounting either of those things. What I'm saying to you is when you go to the New Testament, that's not how they defined a disciple. In Jesus' day, neither of these were the metrics of a true disciple. A, A disciple is a word that means not only to learn, but to come to become attached to one's teacher. You see, the defining mark of a disciple in the day of Jesus, listen to this, was the relationship to the one he was following. Hear that. The defining mark was the relationship to the one he was following. It wasn't just some things he learned. It wasn't just a pattern of behavior. That was an attachment, a a relationship, a pursuit. Listen, an obsession, if you will, with the one he was following. That's why these people in in Jesus' day, man, they they would leave everything, family, home, job, career, and they would follow him. They didn't ask questions about how they were going to pay the bill. It was an obsession. They were consumed with a passionate pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, being a disciple of Jesus is not simply conforming to a system of moral behavior, nor 
Is it merely comprehending a set of doctrinal truths? It is first and foremost an intimate love relationship. And listen to me. The goal is the relationship. We teach people, you give your life to Christ, you get this relationship, you go to heaven when you die, and between then and then, you do the best you can to live for Him. That is so not the gospel. The same gospel that gives me forgiveness of sin is the same gospel that day by day sets me free from the power of sin in my life as I live out of the overflow of an intimate love relationship with Jesus. Let me, when we started our church, God began to burst some of this stuff in our heart and, and we spent a year studying the gospels to examine what is a disciple. Here we are planning a church. We got an opportunity to start this from scratch and the bad, the good part of that is you get to start from scratch. The bad part is you can't blame the last guy, right? Well, you know, it'd be better, but that last guy, I mean, well, if it's not good, guess what? I got to look in the mirror. I'm the only guy to blame. So we spent a year studying the Gospels, and we examined the life of Christ. And let me tell you what I discovered. You can take the four Gospels, not that you would do this, but if you took a pair of scissors and you cut out every story in the Gospels, you can drop every story into one of three file folders. Jesus and his relationship to the Father... Jesus and his relationship with his disciples. Jesus and his relationship with the unbelieving world. Every story in the God. Think about it. Jesus and his relationship with the Father. That was the foundation, right? Jesus even said everything he did, he did out of the overflow of intimacy with the Father. He said it this way. When you see my words, it's not me at work. What did he say? It's the Father at work in me. He said, when you hear my words, it's not my words. It's the Father's words in me. Was he not God in the flesh? Yes, he was. But in his sovereignty, he chose to live as a man in complete dependence on the will of the Father so that the Father was manifesting his very life in the Son. Setting for us a perfect example of this abiding relationship. And as you study the Gospels over and over again, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus and his relationship with the Father. Uh, Mark chapter 4, when he goes out, or Luke 4, when he goes out into the wilderness to spend time with the Father. Over and over and over again, stories about Jesus and his fellowship relationship with the Father. Everything else flowed out of that. He said, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I challenge you sometime, read the Gospel of John and find out how many times Jesus uses the word sent. Jesus sent his relationship with his disciples. You can fill in all the examples. Jesus sent his relationship with the world. All the examples. Zacchaeus, woman, in, woman at the well, woman caught in adultery. All the, every story falls into one of those three categories. Now, here's the question. Where does Jesus live today? In us, right? By His Spirit, Christ now dwells in us. Our brother Tony preached it last night. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Romans eight twenty eight. you know it. God causes all things to work together for what? Good. To those who love God and are called according to His what? Purpose. We love Romans eight twenty eight, Especially when the weekly offering's bad, right? We love Romans eight twenty eight. You know the problem? We never read Romans eight twenty nine. Romans 8.29 tells us the purpose. Listen to what Romans 8.29 says. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You know the purpose why God brought us into relationship with himself? So that he could conform us into the image of Christ. Not me trying to live for Christ. Listen, Christ now living his very life in and through me. The goal of the Christian life is not to live for Jesus. The goal of the Christian life is to know Jesus that Christ may live his life through me. Listen, that's the difference in religion and freedom. God doesn't expect me to live the Christian life. You know why? He knows I can't. And if I could, who gets the glory for that? I do. But as I die, Paul said, I have been crucified.
crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up. What's Paul saying? It's not for me to live the life. It's for me to die and rest and abide in an intimate pursuit of a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of the overflow of intimacy with God, God begins to change me on the inside so that what comes out of me is not a better me. It's literally Christ in me. How does that happen? It happens out of the overflow of a relationship with God. So here's a disciple. A follower of Christ growing in fellowship with God and with others. That's a disciple. It's not somebody who knows the Baptist faith and message backwards and forwards and who signed off on it. It's not somebody who attends every week, goes to visitation, checks off the boxes in Sunday school and is able to... That's not a disciple. It's a person whose life is defined by a passionate, intimate love relationship with Jesus Christ that spills out of their life into fellowship with brothers and sisters and impact on those that don't know God at all locally and globally. That's a disciple. Let me tell you what we've done. We've way lowered the bar. Give me five things I'm supposed to do and a couple things I'm not supposed to do. That makes it a target I can hit. It's like saying marriage is putting food on the table and having kids. It's a little more than that, right? Matter of fact, none of that even makes sense without the intimate love relationship. You know what? We got so many church members that are confused because what we're asking them to do, that makes sense without the intimate love relationship with Jesus. All the other stuff flows out of that. And if we miss that, we miss the very essence of what being a disciple is, all right? So let me, let me move on to the second question. My, my time's moving on. I want to get to the second. Here's the second question. This is another, we got to first say, what is a disciple? But, but secondly, we got to say, how do we make them? I mean, the only command in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is the imperative to make disciples, how do, we, how do we make them? The other verbs there are just verbs modifying that, that verb. How do we do it? But that, that's what those other two verbs are there for. They, they, they give a description, baptizing, teaching. Baptizing, and you know this, it, it, it's that public celebration where people are giving a testimony that I'm a follower of Jesus. Baptism is describing that, that process of introducing new people to Christ, people that don't know him. Part of making disciples is winning people to Christ. But one of the greatest tragedies of our denomination is the day we separated evangelism and discipleship. That should never have happened. Listen, you cannot do evangelism without discipleship. You can't do discipleship without evangelism. They go hand in hand. Jesus gave it to us in one verb, make disciples. It's the whole ball of wax. Jesus didn't call us to invite them to a decision. He called us to invite them to a relationship. But, but part of making disciples is introducing new people to Christ. But then he uses this word teaching. It describes that process of pouring into those who know Christ to deepen their relationship with him. And this word teaching is an interesting word in the Greek text. It, if I understand it correctly from Spiros Zodiates, it's a word that involves an investment of personal time by one believer in the life of another. This word for teaching here is not just a word that means to get up and do what I'm doing right now. This is a word that literally involves life on life, investment of time in the life of another person. Where do we find that modeled in scripture? Jesus took three years with 12 guys and spent all day with them. And we think we're good enough to give them 35 minutes of our best every week. And we know we're only getting them about 75% of the weeks. Jesus gave three years life on life and we think a 35-minute sermon a week 
Making disciples involves introducing new people to Christ and coming alongside those who know Christ to deepen their fellowship with Him. Now, when we understand that, we have to start asking some hard questions about our own church. Are we doing that? The greatest example of it is Acts 2, how it happens. I preached yesterday out of Acts chapter 1, that glorious day when the church in Jerusalem was born, 3,000 people came to Christ. At the end of chapter 2, listen to what the Bible says. And those who'd received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It's interesting. You have to ask the question, added to what? I believe textually here he's describing an addition to that community that had been established there in Jerusalem. There was 120, and now we added 3,000. Now there's 3,120. It was that visible expression of the kingdom of God, that tangible community of believers. And I don't know what your Bible does between verses 41 and 42, but I don't have verse 41a where somebody taught them how to do church. What you read in verse 42 and following is just church happening. It's just community in action. It just started happening. It started fleshing itself out. Community was born. Listen to it. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them as anyone might have need. I didn't see verse 41a where they, they brought in enjoy or generis or this stuff just started happening. They didn't have to be manipulated. Not, not that that's what I'm saying, those organizations. Those are great organizations. We learn a lot from them. But, but this, this thing of community and sacrifice and life on life, it just started happening. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together and breaking bread, or gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This radical expression of community. You see, community is not what we do as a church. Community is who we are as a church. Listen, life change happens in community. And unfortunately, we've reduced church to an event we attend instead of a relationship to which we belong. Are you in church? Oh, yeah. I go to, isn't that the way we answer the question? We say, where do you what? Go to church. Where do you go to worship? See what we've done? We've reduced it down to an event that we attend instead of a community to which we belong, where we are life on life living out the gospel, where we are baptizing and teaching, we are winning and introducing new people to Christ, and we are sharing and pouring into the life of those. This is not a foreign concept. Get on an airplane, go to Africa, go to Asia. This is exactly what the church still looks like today. You mean to you the only place we got it messed up is here. Now, there are obviously exceptions to that all over the world, but the rule in those continents is a church that is a community to which you belong and not an event that you attend. And let me tell you what's happening. Radical disciples are being made. They don't have to have professional Christians to take hundreds of thousands of dollars into cities and start churches. They are raising up radical disciples who own it, who get it, and are, who are multiplying and introducing people to Christ and birthing new communities everywhere. We read the book of Acts and we look at our church today in America and so we have to explain away the first five or six chapters in the book of Acts with some theological two-steps <laughs> 
And I understand there was some radical stuff happening, but if we'll open our eyes, that radical stuff, it's still happening in a lot of places globally. What is community? Community is sharing in the mission of Jesus by sharing in the life or sharing life with others. It's sharing in the mission of Jesus by sharing life with others. That's community. It's authentic. It's real. It's genuine. Let me tell you what we have in a lot of our churches. Facade. People come into our churches broken, hurting, dying, suffering, marriages falling apart. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. How else can you explain the divorce rate inside the church is now as high and in some studies higher than the divorce rate outside the church? Let me close by just giving you quickly four dynamics of genuine New Testament community. This is where we're moving as a church, and we're we're actually doing some things that I I don't we're not there yet. We're, some of this stuff still we're, we're fleshing it out, but we're really considering changing the way you join our church, going through our membership process. But you don't join until you connect in a group, because we've created a system where people can be a member of an event and hide, and they're not living in community. And we say you're a member of the church because you come to an event. Really? That's not the church. The church is community. Four dynamics. In every group in our church, here's what we're striving for. An upward dynamic where every group is focused on deepening people's personal, intimate fellowship with God. The goal is to deepen spiritually. Second is an inward dynamic. Every group has a passion to care and meet the needs of those people inside of that community. There's an outward dynamic dynamic every group every group is passionate about joining in God's activity locally and globally every group in our church is challenged to in some way engage locally in our city and in some way engage globally you know what that did it decentralized our missions ministry instead of one office planning how we engage the world now we have 156 offices totally engaging in what God's doing globally. And then here's the fourth dynamic, one we really miss. It's the what we call the onward dynamic. And that upward, inward, outward, onward, that's not original with us. We borrowed that from somebody else, but we've kind of given it our own flavor. The onward dynamic is every group should be intentional about raising up new leaders and multiplying new groups. The expectation in our fellowship is that every three years, we tell them to target 18 months, but at a minimum, every three years, every group ought to reproduce and multiply leader and multiply group. God did this in our hearts, like I said a couple years ago. We've started implementing it in our church. Last November, we had 35 small groups in our church. We were a church with some small groups. We had about 350 adults engaged in small groups. Now we have almost 1,600 adults and students engaged in small groups, over 160 groups in our church, and we say it this way, we're not a church with groups now, we're a church of groups. And I tell our people, if you only got one hour to give this week, do not come hear me preach. Go to your group. Life change happens in community. It's the model Jesus gave us. We, we're moving in our, our, our first real home as a church. We've been in nine different locations. We set up and take down every weekend, like I'm sure some of you do here in Colorado. Moving in our first facility in December. Let me show you how this fleshes out in the life of your church, and I'll, I'll pray and I'm done. Moving into campus, and so we thought, okay, how do we, how do we let the air, how do we reach out to the area around us? Do we establish a strategy where once a month we plan these big events and go in? And here's what our God, God gave our team. It's awesome. 
they took the three-mile radius around our church, divided it up into 100 quadrants. Every small group in our church has adopted one of those 100 quadrants. And for the next three or four months, every month, every group is coming up with their own strategy of how to engage that quadrant, how to share Christ, how to prayer walk, how to serve. So instead of three events where probably if we were lucky, we'd get 150 people to come out of our church to a big major event to go serve in a three-mile radius, instead of three big events, now we're going to have over 700 events happening over a four-month period of time. You know what's happened? The church has been unleashed to be the church. To be the church. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be the church? Here, disciples, brand new people that have come to Christ. Out there engaging from day one. And don't, don't hear this today and think, man, that's, that's slick. No, no, no. I told you from the beginning, we're working this thing. It's messy. It's messy. It's not, it's not clicking on all cylinders. It's messy. It's messy. So don't hear this and think, man, they got it figured out. We don't. We don't. But let me tell you what we do know. We can't keep doing it the way we've been doing it. Our church grew to 2,000 people in eight years. And we didn't penetrate the lostness of our city by even 1%. Now, most people would say it's a church planning success. 2,000 people coming every weekend. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to plant a church in the city. The goal is to church the city. It's to, it's to make disciples in the city and then let our cities be launching pads from which we send people in our own country and globally to engage, to carry out the mission. Listen, if it's the last thing he said, what do you think? is going to be the first thing he asks us when he comes again. Lord, Lord Jesus, may we be about reproducing your life in the lives of others. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.